So today's reading comes from Esther 6, verses 1 to 10, and we'll be reading from the ESV version. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who had attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for them. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. This is the end of our scripture reading. Good afternoon, everybody. Today we're back in last... Two weeks, we took a break because it was Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, and today we're back in the story in the book of Esther. And today we land in chapter 6 that was read by our sister Hannah. And chapter 6 is is almost comical, what's happening in chapter 6. If you you understood what was happening in chapter 5, chapter 6, this is arguably the most iconic scene, not only in the book of Esther, probably in all of Old Testament scripture. Uh, Because chapter 5, if you remember, ended with this man Haman vowing to put Mordecai on a nine-feet gallows. You know, Mordecai was driving him crazy, and Haman said, I will not rejoice until this man is dead. And the same night, Scripture tells us in chapter 6, verse 1, as Haman's plans to hang Mordecai was put into action as this nine-feet gallows was being built that night, probably. The same night, verse 1 tells us, author tells us, King Xerxes is up late and can't seem to fall asleep. For whatever reason, the king cannot sleep. So instead of trying to put himself to sleep, because we all hate that, right? Like when you can't sleep, last thing you want to do is try to force yourself to sleep, right? So the king decides in, in our passage to catch up on some of his work that he needs to do. So he calls his men to read for him the book titled Memorial Deeds. Very descriptive in the title, Memorial Deeds, not very creative. Uh, And while the book, this book of Memorial Deeds is being read to the king, in verse 2, the author tells us the king realizes that there was a deed done by a man named Mordecai at the city gates. Yet, he realizes his uh, bravery was never rewarded. Remember in chapter 2, we talked about this, right? Mordecai is serving at king's, king's gate, finds out this evil plot against the king, tells his cousin Esther, hey, this is happening, and the plot is ruined, the king is saved. But chapter 2 tells us, 
The deed was recorded. Mordecai's good deed was recorded, but it went unrewarded, which was rather strange. And when we're in that chapter, we briefly talked about this idea of God's perfect timing, that there was, there was probably a reason why Mordecai was not rewarded in chapter 2, and now we land in chapter 6. We'll see why Mordecai was not rewarded at the time, but he's rewarded now. And this idea of God's timing being far better than ours. Amen? His time is better? Some of you guys are like, no, I want it now. His time is better. So in chapter 6, uh, it's abundantly clear, right? Through chapter 6, it's abundantly clear that God's timing is better than ours. So the king, right, in this passage, though many years have passed, some commentators say four, some say five, many years have passed since Mordecai's act of bravery, uh, will not pa- will not let another pass day pass by without rewarding Mordecai. Right, the king moves immediately to reward Mordecai for this act of bravery. This was not only good for his own reputation, but really, if you think about it, this was good for his own personal security, longevity of his kingdom. This is how dictatorship work, right? You reward those that show royalty to you, right, and buy their royalty. So, in the next day. Um, Next morning, the king calls for the council, and, and interestingly, council to discuss what should be done for Mordecai, and at that very moment, uh, author tells us, Haman walks in, and Haman is walking in, remember in chapter 5, he was going to ask the king for Mordecai's head, right? He's walking in to ask for the head of the man the king wants to reward, Things are beginning to unravel for Haman. So far in chapters 1 to 5, Haman is doing great, successful, rich, favored by the king, no one more greater than Haman himself. Yet this is the turning point of the story. Nonetheless, verse 6, the king, so king tells his man, hey, bring Haman in. I want to ask him what should be done for the men that the king delights in. That's the question in verse 6. And Haman immediately assumes the king is talking about who? He thinks the king is talking about himself. Many of us, or some of us, have been there, right? Uh, Your boss is talking to you about a potential management hire, potential opportunity, and you're, you're thinking, okay, this is for me, only to find out the job was given to your coworker that you hate, right? It was given to Joe, and you don't like Joe, the guy you cannot stand, but the nonetheless, Haman excitedly tells the king, right? He, he has detailed uh, plan. What should be done to, the, to this man? Because he's thinking, this is for me. I could tell him what I want. So verse 7, he tells the king, the king should put the man in his own robe, put a crown on his head, and let him ride around the city center, and let it be declared that this is the man the king delights in. I mean, it's an interesting, if you think about it, it's an interesting request. Right? It's, it's not a promotion. He's not asking for promotion. He's not a- asking for some large amount of wealth. I would have asked for money. I would have asked for a position. Um, not a new sort of penthouse near the palace. No. I mean, he simply wants, if you think about it, it's really childish. What he wants is he wants to be a king for a day. And I don't mean to psychoanalyze, I'm not a counselor, my wife is, I don't want to psychoanalyze the man, but it's pretty obvious that Haman is a man who deeply cares about his public reputation. More than anything else, he wants the whole city, whole world to see 
that he's a person of great importance. This is very important to Haman. All of us have different uh, motivation that we're driven by. Some of us are driven by fear. Some of us are driven by different things. But Haman, it's about the sense of significance. Perhaps it's a window to how he really feels inside, right? Not feeling significant enough. And this innate need to prove to not only himself, to the world, that he's a person of great importance is what eventually gets him trouble. If you think about chapters 1, 2, 5, this is every action of Haman is driven by this desire to show the world that he's someone important. He's someone great. Because when he looks in the mirror, he doesn't see someone great. Yet if we are honest, if I'm honest with you and you're honest with me, we are much more like Haman than we would like to believe. Right? This, impact, this impacts what we choose to do with our time, our money. It, it deeply impacts even what we choose to wear. Right? This idea of wanting to be known as someone of importance or significance. I mean... Um, even at a cafe, coffee shop, even when you're in a subway, when you're driving your car, even with a stranger, someone you have, you have no relationship with, you want to be known as someone of importance. There's this desire. It's a, it's a common human desire. I, I like to believe it's not just me. All of us have this desire to be known and maybe even known as someone of importance, significance. And they're, they're not all bad, Right? Because it's a human desire, and they're not bad desires, yet if they become the primary driver of your life and my life, you know, you're going to be miserable. We're going to be miserable because everything we do, it's not about the activity itself, but it's about how we're viewed by what we do. I mean, look at Haman. Let's learn from Haman's life, right? He's the richest man. He could offer king wealth. He's the most powerful man outside of the king. He's invited to private dinners, private parties by the queen, you know, VIP list by the queen. Yet, it's very clear that those things were not enough. You know, growing up, uh, about 20 years ago, when I was in college, you know, my, my story is a little bit of, I, I grew up in the middle of nowhere. We had one traffic light in the whole city. My dad was a church planter, which meant we were poor which meant we didn't have much stuff. Uh, and I grew up uh, middle of nowhere in Korea. And sort of that defined my life, right? That was like from age zero to 10. And then we, all of a sudden, my parents set, us, set me and my sis- sister down and said, we're moving to America. And we're like, where's America? We're like, okay, we're going to learn English. You're going to live there. And so when I got to America, right, I, I grew up in middle of nowhere, very poor. But I didn't realize I was poor because everybody else was poor, right? But I moved to America, we land in this place called McLean, Virginia, my, where my aunt sort of settled down. And my aunt was very successful. She had real estate, she bought houses, she flipped them. So, you know, within a month, right, I, I, I go from this happy, average, poor kid in Korea to living in one of the richest areas. This is the area where all the diplomat kids come, all the CIA workers work. Um, even the foreigners in my elementary school had nice things. Like, you know, you, you go somewhere else, and all the foreigners, you stick together because you realize, like, you, you live sort of similar lifestyle. No, this area, all the other foreigners spoke better English than the American kids in our school. 
which, which was, was terrible. I mean, I have stories, on, stories of how difficult that was for me adjusting, right? But, but so that sort of defined, like being poor and then thrown into a very wealthy uh, uh, sort of culture defined my life. And at the, like by, by age like 15, all I wanted to do was I didn't want to be poor. I was like, I'm going to be rich. I don't care how I get there. I'm going to make a lot of money and I'm not going to be poor. Because that was really traumatizing for me to be able to move into such a wealthy area and be able to fit in. So, so about 20 years ago, there was an iconic song. I'm sure you, if you didn't hear the song, I'm sure you've heard of the title of the song. And the song is, is, is written by this great artist named 50 Cent, right? 50 Cent. And the title is Get Rich or Die, Die Trying. Get Rich or Die Trying. Not very difficult. Um, and I, I, I spent all of my 20s because I, I, that was sort of my, one of my... my heart's desire to become rich, living in, with this mantra. This had become my life's value or, or mantra, right? I didn't care what I majored in. I didn't care what kind of job. I, I, I've done a bunch of different jobs, even in college. I sold wigs. I sold shoes. I ran pizza. I did a bunch of things. I didn't care. All I wanted to do was get rich or die trying. And I remember... You know, graduating with management degree, I, was, I had no interest in business management. I mean, I, you know, later I realized I, I love art. I love drawing things. But when in my, as a, as a, a foreigner, you know, Asian American home in America, it's like, what do you want to major in? It's accounting. It's you're going to be a doctor or you're going to be, uh, you're going to go into business, right? So after I'd gotten my business degree, uh, you know, I, I moved to Korea. I remember I had a great job out of college. I'd moved to Korea. You know, there was a lot of different opportunities for someone like me who was bilingual. Uh, I remember, you know, I made more money than most of my friends. I probably made more money 50, 20 years ago than what I make now, which was crazy, 20 years ago. I was like 23. What did I do with that money? Spent it, right? Um, and I remember living in my own space, getting to choose to live in college, to save money, I lived with five other dudes in like this two-bedroom apartment. I lived in like a loft. Like I shared a room with four people, and I lived in like a loft of a room. It was, it was a terrible, terrible situation. Um, and then so I made money. I got out. I got to choose my own place in the heart of like Gangnam. If you don't know the area, Cheongdam is probably the most expensive part of the, the city, I moved, I worked for this uh, company in Cheongda. I got my own place, I bought my own motorcycle, and I remember just, man, life, it felt, life felt good, right? But then, you know, after a while, after experiencing, you know, wealth and being able to go out with these cool friends and buy cool things and color my hair orange, I don't have hair anymore, but I, I did have hair at the time. Uh, and, and just sort of living my life the way I wanted, I, I was miserable. I got to a place where I was like, it was never enough. And that was sort of my journey of committing, recommitting my life to the Lord and, 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 and going to seminary, actually. That whole sort of experience. All my 20s, I thought, if I was rich, if I was wealthy, I'm, I'm going to be happy. This is all I want. And when I got there, I had this sort of quarter-life crisis. And I like sold everything, moved to Cambodia, and I was like, okay, I'm going to figure out the meaning of life. Terrible idea. It was really, really hot and not very, very fun. 
But friends, stuff, materials, and, and we know this, all of us know this, yet we still desire more wealth. We still desire more stuff. Friends, stuff, materials, wealth, power, none of those things in themselves can give you the sense of significance or satisfaction that you're hoping to receive from them. We know this, and we would like to believe this, but we probably don't, and I don't. Sometimes I do, but oftentimes I don't. So yes, when you buy that nice, uh, nice Louis Vuitton bag, or you, know, you, you buy that BMW for a moment, maybe a month, maybe a year, you'll feel special. I remember like, my father-in-law switched our cars, and it was a like, significantly nice car, like SUV, brand new. I remember riding that car. Right, Sorrento, Kia, right? It's not, it's not BMW, but I remember feeling important. Like, and I sat there. I was like higher than the other people. And then I saw other Kias. I saw Kia Sportage, which was a smaller, lower, lower. But I saw Hyundai's. And, and I remember looking down and saying, oh, I'm a Sportage driver. Looking down and like judging people that didn't have a Sportage or nicer. It, it, it feels nice, right? But the moment you see someone with... The moment I saw someone with a Kia Sorento, which is like the minivan, because I'm like, I'm like, like Ajishi now, like old man, I was like, dude, I want a Sorento. Sportage is not good enough. See, you won't feel as good when you see someone else. The moment you see someone else with a nicer bag, nicer car, newer model. In fact, you'll always want something better. You'll always want to upgrade. Now I get into my car eight years later, I don't feel anything. I'm just like, my car sucks. I want a, I want a nicer car. Anybody? And, and Haman, when you look at the story, Haman had everything he had ever wanted. There's nothing more he could have. But again, it was never enough. And so that's the first observation from the text. That's, that ruined Haman's life. But more important observation, and, and I have two observations, this is the last one, is not as obvious from the story. That's a low-hanging fruit, right? This is, this is a higher-hanging fruit. So follow with me. Throughout the book of Esther, we are presented with eight feasts. Esther chapter 1, Esther chapter 11, there are eight feasts throughout the story. And the word is mishteh. That's the, the Hebrew word, mishteh. And the word mishteh um, is only mentioned 44 times throughout all of Scripture. What's interesting is half, more, uh, almost half the time, like 22 times, the word mishteh is, is, is mentioned in the book of Esther. So almost half of 44 occurrences of mishteh is in the book of Esther. Follow with me. Just I have a point. Okay, I'm not trying to bore you. I'm not trying to lecture you. Just follow with me, right? Uh, so the original audience, if, by, by seeing the repeated uh, word mishteh, 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 eight times, would have known that these feasts, this word, placed a significant role in telling the story of Esther, marking the important events. Actually, every important event happens either at the party or after the party or right before. In chapter 6, the account that we are in Haman's sort of downfall takes place between feast number four, chapter five, verse, verse one to eight is the fourth feast. Chapter seven, one to nine is Pastor John will be preaching the next week. That's the feast number five, right? 
So this story takes place right in the middle of these feasts, which are important markers of the story. So, so what the author is trying to do is, is trying to hint at us, hint at the original audience that this is the climax of the story. Chapter 6 is the most important portion of the story. Climax. Every movie we love, they have great, great climax, right? Every Korean drama we love, great climax. Um, great reversal of fortune. A few weeks ago, uh, Emma and I, we do like movie weekends. Emma loves watching movies. I wanted to show her one of my favorite uh, sports movies of all time, Mighty Ducks. Anyone? Mighty Ducks, the original. Not like two, three, four, like the original one. It's a classic. If you don't know the movie, it's a classic hockey movie. And the Ducks uh, are the, uh, the ultimate underdog. Like they're like hodgepodge of people that no one wants to coach. And this coach, Bombay, uh, gets caught drinking and driving, is sent to, as a volunteer hours after he has coached this team. So they somehow make it to the championship round, and they're playing the Hawks, and the Hawks basically win every year, right? They have championship banners every year. In one, in one of the scenes, uh, Coach Bombay, as, as he's looking at his players, they're getting beaten up by the Hawks. This is a championship uh, game. They're getting murdered, right? It's like 4-0, right? And I don't know what the score was, but Coach Bombay all of a sudden looks at his players and he's like, hey, you guys are trying too hard. We need to have fun. Like cheesy, cheesy music, imagine, right? You need to have fun. And then he starts quacking at the, at the ducks, like quack, quack, quack. And then the whole team quacks and the whole crowd, if you can imagine, it's very cheesy, but very, very classic, awesome. And then... And they start winning, right? And they, they make this, this crazy comeback and they win their championship game and Coach Bombay could stick it to his old coach's face. You gotta watch it. I, I, I ruined it for you, but it, I mean, it's like this movie was made 30 years ago, so hopefully I did it. I mean, you can assume, right? This, it, it, there's, no, there's no surprises in this, in this movie. Just by hearing the music, you can tell where you are in the, in the movie. Um, and that's sort of, the climax is sort of what's taking place in chapter six. But what's interesting is in the most pivotal, pivotal moment of the story, guess who's not in the story? Right? This is the, if chapter 6 is the most important part of the story, who do we expect to be in the story? This is the book of Esther. But Esther is nowhere to be found in chapter... She's not there at all. You see, the author wants you and I to know that this turn about, this turnaround of events is of no human work. As brave as Esther has been throughout this story, it's clear, the author wants to make it clear that she's not the main agent of the story. Right? It's not Esther, it's not even Mordecai. Right? If, you, if you read chapter 6, yeah, Mordecai is celebrated, but he says nothing in the story. It says nothing in chapter 6. What the author wants you and I to know is that know through this literary device, these feasts, this climax, and Esther being missing from the story is that it's Yahweh, Israel's God, who's, who's the one behind the scene making things happen according to his good purposes. Remember, 
Mordecai could have been rewarded in chapter 2, but he's not. It's only after five some years later in chapter 6, he is rewarded for what he's done in the past. So Arthur wants everyone reading the story to realize this isn't some Jewish Cinderella story, but it's a story about God who remains true to his promise, a story about God who keeps his covenant. He's a covenantal God. And even the most powerful person in the empire, the king, is not in control of what's about to happen. And this is especially, and you're like, well, why is that so important? Because we've talked about this before. This is especially, I know Eleanor, it's important. Scream it out, girl. It's, it's especially important because the story is written in a context that is largely polytheistic. Persian culture believed in many gods, right? For Persians, and even some Jews that were living in exile, they believed that there was not only one God, Yahweh, but many gods. This was their context. And these many gods were in a constant battle to determine people's fate, right? So if the God you worshipped won, that was good for you. You would have wonderful ear or a fantastic ear. But if, if he or she lost, the God you worship lost, that meant you're going to suffer. There's famine, it's because your God lost. And no one was ever sure which God or goddesses was in control over their situation. So it's in that very context, the story of Esther is given, and the author speaks about this unique God, Yahweh. And he's not fickle, he's not confused, he's not without power, and he does not battle other gods. Instead, we are reminded of this Yahweh who is sovereign, who is faithful, who is God of his covenant. And we are reminded the God of Abraham, the same God in the story, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, who continues to show his loving kindness to a group of people who have proven to be fickle at best. And so friends, as we wrap up this time, we too need to be reminded. I I believe some of us today here, we need this reminder. We need to be reminded of the same truth. I need this reminder, right? Because you see, contrary to what many of us may believe about the world that we live in, I think the world that we live in is just as polytheistic, if not more, than the time of the story. Let me explain. If you look at the definition of idolatry biblically, not our our definition of idols, but Bible's definition of idols is, is at the heart of it is this, that we parody the real relationship between us and our creator God by using substitutes. It's not simply just ascribing to a different religion, but it could be anything that we replace God with. Wealth, Jesus talked about more, more about money than anything else. Wealth is an obvious example the Bible talks about again and again, both Old Testament and New Testament. Careers, material goods, your ideology, things that we believe to be good. 
idea of equality, freedom of speech, which are good values. Can, can, they're, they're good values, but they're terrible gods. And what's dangerous about our culture is that we, large, we are largely unaware of this polytheistic nature of our culture. One of the most powerful commencement speech was given by late American author named David Foster Wallace. I've, I've listened to this talk, This Is Water, over and over again. I love uh, this, this talk. Uh, sadly, David Foster Wallace you know, took his own life, probably 2008, I think September. But in this, in this talk, he articulates the polytheistic nature of our modern culture. Uh, let, me, let me read for us. Just, I, I don't want to just read one line. I want to kind of read three paragraphs. And just follow with me. This is an amazing talk given by a non-Christian author talking to a group of college students in Kenyan College. I think it's like 1998 or something. And let me, let me just quote. It's, it's in the screen. Follow with me. Can you read that? Yeah, you could read that, right? I'll read for us. And this, this, is, this is part of his talk, middle of his talk. He's trying to encourage these college graduates how to actually live a better life, a meaningful life, right? This was sort of his, his drive to, to write about what it means for us to live morally, right? This is his talk, and I quote, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism, right? Many of us, most of us believe we live in an atheistic culture. God no longer exists, science drives, right? Drives our world. But David Foster Wallace says, there, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it, be it Jesus Christ or Allah or Yahweh or weakened mother goddess or four noble truth or some infringible set of ethical principles, it's that pretty much anything else you worship outside of those things will eat you alive. And he says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. We talked about that. Haman. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure. And you will always feel ugly when time and age start showing. You will die your million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, brahmids, epigrams, and parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. You worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to keep their fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. End quote. What a sermon. What a a message. 
Friends, I don't know about you, but if I'm honest with you, every day as I turn on my devices, whether it's my phone, my tablet, my computers, make my way to work, driving or on a subway, engage with those that are around me, people that serve me coffee or my, my daughter's teachers, I often catch myself operating not very differently from my non-Christian neighbors. Sure, when things are going well, I'm happy and I'm grateful. I'm excited to live life. But as soon as things get hard and difficult, as soon as things don't seem to go according to what I had envisioned, right, what I felt like was good for me, it's not faith. It's not faith that comes out. Often it's mistrust. Often it's complaint. Often it's doubt. So we need this reminder that the author is giving us through this text in Esther chapter 6, that, that the reminder that God of our pastors, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob, the same God is with you. He's with me. And we can become sorrowful. Sure, life is hard. We will have troubles. We will fight with our spouse. Things will not work out. We will miss out on that promotion. We will get sick. Sure, life will get difficult. If you live life, you know life is full of beautiful things and, and difficult things. Sure, we can become sorrowful. But when life gives us lemons, we are not without hope. See, that's the difference between someone who who professes to be a Christian and someone who's not. It's not that we won't go through seasons of difficulty and pain and challenges. It's that we have a place to turn to, and we are not undone by these setbacks and troubles and trials. Because the God of the Bible that the author of Esther is presenting to us so clearly is that He is not confused. He is not delayed. He is not without power. He is not in competition with some other gods. But the fact that he is always faithful to his promises, but not according to our timeline, our calendar, our schedule, but his. And we see that in Esther 2 to Esther 6, God has perfect timing. Mordecai needed to wait. He was in sackcloth and ashes and just ready to quit a life. And in his patience, he sees the reward of waiting on God. So friends, if any of us are struggling to trust in God's plan for you this afternoon, this message is for you. If any of us are struggling with with fear, sense of doubt, mistrust, and bitterness because something has happened in life and we can't get over it, the message is for you. If any of us are filled with regrets of what has happened or what has not happened, I mean, I'll be honest with you. You know, as I'm driving or and mindlessly doing things, I, 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 I think about, oh, man, I could have done this, and things could have been better, or I could have done that, and things could have been better. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. But all of these things were filled with regrets. This message is for you, that God is with you, and you are in him. You see, Haman's greatest desire 
Just what, for a day. If you read the story, this is the end. I promise. I'm not going to go another 20 minutes. Haman's greatest desire for a day was what? He wanted to wear the king's robe, the king's crown, and walk the streets so that others can know that he is someone of importance, that he is accepted by the king. I believe in each of us, no matter who you are, where you've come from, we all have that longing to be known and accepted by the king. And friends, I have a good news. If that's you, this is the reason why Jesus, the true king, Pastor John, two weeks ago, talked about the different kind of king. That was a sermon. This different kind of king came for you, and he came for me. And as he hung on that tree for us, on that hill of Calvary, the author, the biblical authors tell us he was stripped naked. He did that to cover our sins with his robes of righteousness. He has cleansed our sins with his blood. There at the cross, he has declared you and I his own. And we are his beloved. So we, knew, we do not need to continue to live in regret and fear and bitterness. But look to our Savior. Amen? Let me pray for us. Before I pray, I want to give you a moment to pray on your own. Uh, and I want to give you a moment to be honest with God. Let's not pray this lofty prayer that means nothing. Let's be honest about perhaps how you feel. Let's be honest before God about where you are in life. Perhaps some of you guys have been doubting if, if God is even real, whether he even cares. I think the right place to start is, is there and say, God, I don't know what's happening. God, I don't know why I'm going through this or how I feel or why I'm so bitter. Maybe that's the place to start for some of us, to be honest before God, because God can handle it. We see throughout Psalms, David is like just crying out, lamenting and saying, God, I'm so tired. I'm exhausted. I don't think you're there. And God meets him there. So I want to give you guys a moment to, to make, just pray genuinely. None of these lofty prayer that sounds good that don't mean nothing. Let's be honestly say, this, God, this is how I feel about my life, about my marriage, about my family situation, about my career. But Lord, I want to trust that you're with us. I want to trust that God of Esther is with me, that this is the same God with me. Let's pray. Pastor Mike will come and lead us into communion after a moment of prayer.